Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish, for this, the 100th episode of the podcast. And as you heard, new intro music, uh, one-time only special intro music. Friend of mine, Nyan Bula, here in Northern Virginia. Uh, his band, the NRI, has been around for a long time. Finally got to go see him play in D.C. a few weeks ago and just want to switch things up for the 100th episode. So um, I'll put a link to the NRIs. They're here in D.C. Um, if you're in D.C., you should try to check them out. They'll be playing in Georgetown in December. So just wanted to switch things up a little bit. 100 episodes. Uh, that means I've had more than 99 guests talking about open data, data visualization, presentation skills, all doing incredible work in these various fields. I refer to the show task of doing a podcast as lazy man's blogging uh it's a lot easier and a lot more fun to find someone who's doing incredible work uh have an interesting incredible conversation with them and pull that together uh, rather than trying to write 800 words on, on a topic that you know maybe i don't know that much about so on this the 100th episode it's just me uh you get to listen to me rant and rave for a little bit i want to do a quick look back and then a look forward uh, both look back and what's happened with the show over the last two and a half years or so, and then a look forward about what I've been thinking about uh, with respect to communicating data and data visualization. So where have we come from? Well, the show uh, launched in April of 2015. My first guest was Alberto Cairo. Uh, a great guest, obviously, has done a lot of great work and uh, was super excited to be able to launch the show with him. Um, I've basically been able to keep up that weekly uh, publishing schedule uh, every Tuesday, save for a couple of weeks, maybe at the end of the year and uh, parts of the summer, take a break, but able to keep up that weekly schedule, which has really been incredible, both that I can do it, but also that not that there's a shortage of people to interview, but they're willing to come on the show. Um, it's always sort of a guessing game when I email someone and I'm just sort of crossing my fingers that they're going to be willing to come on and take time out of their day to join me and talk about stuff that they're working on. So I'm really grateful that, you know, I've had more than 99 people willing to come on the show and talk to me for 25, 30 minutes. And also very grateful to you, the listener for tuning in every week to listen to these episodes. So if you have kept up over the last two and a half years, you have spent more than 33 hours listening to me and my guests talk about these different topics. So let me talk about the top five episodes, the most downloaded episodes over the last two and a half years. Now, I'm going to guess you're not going to be surprised by the number one episode, the most popular, most downloaded episode, was the 21st episode of the podcast with Edward Tufte. E.T., as he goes by, E.T. and I met here in Virginia before one of his uh, workshops here in Virginia. Uh, we sat down in the big ballroom with my gear and talked about all things data visualization. We talked about data art. We talked about what it means to communicate data. talked about uh, how he does or does not take in feedback and suggestions when it comes to his workshop. So that's number one. Probably not a surprise to most of you. Uh, number two, number two most popular show of the last uh, two or a half years or so was the crew from the Financial Times. So uh, I was fortunate enough to talk to Martin, John, and Alan about the work that they do, about how they think about getting reporters and news folks to embrace data, embrace data visualization, make it easier for them to create visualizations and how they think about creating different types of visualizations from static visualizations to interactive visualizations. That was a great show. Third most popular, most downloaded episode 
was the Data and Women episode, a uh, meetup group here in D.C., also around the world. But I was talking to Brittany, Emily, and Julie about the new meetup group here in D.C. And on that show, we talked about the challenges uh, women often face in the field of data science, uh, data analysis, and data visualization. Um, And that group is still going on here in D.C. Uh, You should look them up if you're local. And you should look wherever you live, look for the chapter of the Data Plus Women uh, group. It's a really fantastic resource, both for men and women, uh, of course. The fourth most popular downloaded episode was with Drew Scow and Robert Kassara. Uh, This is a little bit of a surprise to me. Drew and Robert had written a couple papers on how we perceive and the process by which we view pie charts. Um, It was two academic papers. Uh, so I was kind of surprised that this made the top five, that people are so interested. Of course, I think it's because there's still this raging debate about, about pie charts. So maybe it's not so much a surprise, but it was a fairly uh, research-oriented uh, discussion. So that was a little bit of a surprise. And then finally, the fifth most popular uh, podcast episode was the episode with Evan Sinar um, from Philadelphia. Evan of course, has a huge Twitter following. We talked about uh, his process and communicating data, uh, especially within organizations and, and to big audiences as well. So there's your top five. I won't tell you the bottom five, but those are the top five folks that I've talked to. But it's been an incredible uh, experience to talk to the folks that I've been able to talk to, all the way from data journalism to people in industry to researchers to people who are doing Uh, presentation skills to people who are authors. Um, It's really been a a, a great experience. So let me also tell you a little bit about behind the scenes. Uh, How does the show work? How do I put it together? Uh, I get this question a lot. A lot of people are interested in in starting their own podcasts, which I encourage everyone to do, but will also tell you it does take some work. Uh, It takes some time to pull these things together. So let me give you a little bit of the behind the scenes, uh, how the show works. So as you could probably guess, most of my guests are not in DC. So Most of the interviews are conducted on Skype. Uh, I use a uh, little program called Call Recorder, which records the the calls on video, and I immediately convert them to audio. I'll often record with the video on, although you end up getting lower sound quality, but it makes for a better conversation, I think, so there's definitely a trade-off. Skype, if you don't know, does have different channels for video and for audio only, so the clearest audio you actually get is when you make a call just audio only. Uh, not going through video and then turning video off, but actually going through the, the audio only channel. Uh, but I tend to do video. I think it makes uh, for a more natural conversation uh, when you can see the person. So I'll reach out to people that I think are doing interesting work, uh, that are interesting people, um, which is always good to talk to interesting people doing interesting work. Uh, something that I might want to learn about. As I said, it's lazy man's blogging. So uh, it's great to just find really interesting people doing interesting stuff. So I'll reach out. I'm always grateful they are willing to come on the show. I mean, it's pretty incredible that I've had you know more than 99 guests come on the show and, and talk about the work that they're doing. So I'll reach out and we'll, we'll chat a little bit, uh, usually via email, about what exactly we want to talk about in the 20 or 25 minutes. And I'll basically try to come up with a sketch of the interview. So I'll list four or five questions and, of course, you know, let them chime in and and we use that as really the outline for the discussion. Um, we don't, I don't always follow it, you know, line by line, uh, because we'll have a con- we'll talk about a topic and something will uh, take us, you know, veer off and we'll we'll get in deep into some some topics and maybe not get through everything or we'll get uh, through more than we had planned. But I use that as the outline to frame the discussion and 
you know, I'm not doing these interviews as a way to catch anyone or to trick anyone. So we both go into the, the discussion knowing uh, where we're going to try to head. So I uh, create these MP3s. I ship them off to uh, Ken Skaggs, who's doing the sound editing for me. He does a fantastic job. I'm always thankful that uh, he's able to pull out my ums and uhs and the doors closing and the ambulances going by and the clocks ringing. So he's able to go in and clean up the audio and he sends it back to me. I drop it into GarageBand. I uh, put in the intro and outro music, maybe do some minor adjustments, throw the logo image onto the file, and then put it into uh, the blog where I'm using Blueberry is my provider for uh, the blog itself to push it out to iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, and others. And then I have to write the blog post. And the blog post is really a modification in some ways of the person's bio. Uh, I try to write it uh, from my perspective and frame it about the around the conversation that we are having as opposed to the accomplishments the person's done. As we're doing the conversation, I'm, I'm writing down lists of links that I want to make sure I link to on the show notes. And I'm also writing down places where I think there are good quotes uh, that I might be able to use uh, in banner images or on the show notes page itself or you know, on social media. So uh, I'm trying to take notes of those things too. And I'll go back later and go through the recording and find, you know, get the exact quote. So the show notes goes up um, and anyone who writes a blog knows there's a lot that goes along with that. I have to make some images uh, to go with the front page of the site. And then Tuesday morning, off it goes, hit publish. Usually try to do a few days before, but usually it's like the night before I send an email to the guest. Say the show's about to come out. Thanks for coming on. Here's a couple of tweets you can use. Here's the link. Here's some images uh, if you want to promote the show and uh, most of the guests are happy to do that to help promote themselves on the show. So that's the process. Uh, the interviews, of course, themselves are 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, setting them up and getting the calendar set up and having the conversation beforehand might take 30 minutes to an hour. Ken is doing the audio editing. That might take him two or three hours. And then pulling the rest of it together probably takes me an hour, maybe maybe 90 minutes, something like that. So it is a lot of work. Uh, I find it really rewarding. I hope you find it uh, enjoyable to listen to the show. I hope you would consider doing your own podcast uh, to highlight the data visualization work that you're doing. I think more voices in the field can only be a good thing uh, out there. The podcasting world is expanding rapidly. It's a lot of fun. I'll, I'll be honest, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Okay, so that's my look back. Let me look forward. So I'm just going to talk about a few things that I've been thinking about some things that I've been writing about and talking about with folks. And hopefully we'll get some people on the show uh, in the next few months to help me think about some of these issues and some of these topics. So the first thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is qualitative data, how to visualize qualitative data. And I know there are a lot of people out there doing interesting work with qualitative data. Anne Emery comes to mind. Uh, I haven't had Anne on the show yet, but we'll definitely do so. You know, a lot of people work with qualitative data. They're doing interviews. They don't know how or they have trouble visualizing the data because inherently it is qualitative. And to me, some visualization types that people are using to visualize qualitative data, to me, they're inherently quantitative. So for example, a word cloud, uh, in my mind, is inherently quantitative. Once you've taken that text and you've calculated the frequencies of different words, you now have quantitative data. So for me, that's converting qualitative to quantitative is not the core, I think, of the challenge. I think that the real challenge is uh, you've done a series of interviews. You have 
all this text information and how are you going to convey that information to an audience? And one thing that I think people who do qualitative research have an advantage over those of us who do more quantitative research is they have personal stories or personal narratives, personal experiences that the people in their their studies or their research can tell the, the researcher about. And one thing I think that people who work with quantitative data don't do enough is to think about those stories and how we can use those stories to connect with our reader, connect with our user, and make it more personal and make it more meaningful. And so I think one of the things I think perhaps qualitative data analysts should take advantage of is the fact that they do have these more personal, these more narrative pieces that they can use. Uh, so pictures with images, having some overview of the space that might be a little more quantitative, but then to allow the user to drill in a little bit and find the true qualitative information in the series of, in the form of quotes or annotation or pictures, um, I think is a real advantage. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I've been building out a, a collection of qualitative data forms that I've been thinking about how others have used. I think it's a real challenge, but I'm excited about the opportunities it affords us because we know how important making these personal connections is, how we as readers of content really connect, I think, with stories, with reporting that we can personally relate to that I think is different than when we see it in a form of a bar chart or a pie chart or, or, a, or an, even an interactive visualization. But when it's someone's experience that we can relate to, I think that might bring us in in a deeper and perhaps even more meaningful way. So that's the first thing I've been thinking a lot about. The second thing I've been thinking a lot about is maps uh, and, and visualizing data on a map. And I should have a blog post out uh, shortly. And I'll warn you up front, it's a very long blog post, but that's just the way it is. I'm going along with this one uh, instead of trying to cut it up into multiple blog posts. Um, so we all know that people like maps and they like seeing data on maps. And I think... There's a clear reason for that. People are comfortable with maps. They're intuitive. They're logical. I can see where I live. You know, uh, on a map, I can point to Virginia. I can point to California. I can point to Great Britain because we're familiar with them. But if you're listening to this show, you probably know some of the issues with presenting data on a map. Some geographies are much larger than others. And so they may take up a larger space on the map, even though the data may not be that much more important. Uh, there are issues with population density. Montana is a large state. Uh, but it doesn't have as many people as a state like Rhode Island, which is a much smaller state but has more people per square mile, so the population density is much higher. The third issue and the issue that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is how we choose the breaks in our color palettes when we make a choropleth map, when we use color to encode data. So a lot of the basic tools take what I call... Um, an equal classes or an equal binning approach, which is they take the range of the data, you just drop the data in, it's in, it takes the range of the data and splits it into four or five or N groups. And the data are just dropped into those groups. And I think a lot of people probably don't give a lot of thought to that process, what's going on in, in the default tools like Tableau, like an infogram, like a Google Sheets. But those default approaches may not be presenting the data in the best way, if the data are not uniformly distributed, if they have a big skew, if they have an outlier, if there are big differences in the values, they may not be representing the data in, in the best way. And so I've been, been thinking hard about that because there's just this inherent trade-off with, with visualizing data on a maps that people like maps, and yet there's this challenge with really trying to show the nuance and the detail and the differences that may not be apparent when they're presented on maps. So I've been thinking a lot about maps. I've been thinking a lot about 
interactive maps versus static maps as well. So something I've been thinking about, and we've seen a lot of growth in that area um, with Mapbox and, and some of the work that folks in the D3 area have been doing with different projections. So I'm optimistic that there'll be some more strides made in that area, but also I think that for most of us, for the person who's making a map of you know the unemployment rate or whatever it is every day, uh, that there are some things that are not being thought about, that are not being considered when the map's being produced. One of the other things I've been thinking about is data visualization for social media. So we all think carefully, I think, or hope that we all think carefully. Well, let me say this. We all should think carefully about our different audiences when we're creating our visualizations. So a visualization that goes into a academic 50-page report may be much different than the graph that you put on a blog post, um, maybe much different than the interactive data tool that we create. But I think there's also differences in when we put graphs on social media, onto Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. As things stream by and we see quick visualizations fly by us, do we need to be thinking about those visualizations in a different way? I think maybe we do. As you probably know, I'm not a huge fan of pie charts. What I tell people is as follows. I don't make pie charts. But if I were to make pie charts, I would use three or four slices in my pie chart for the following reason. Five or more slices, really hard to see the quantities, really hard to get those quantities, okay? And I'm thinking about a pie chart where I have five sort of equally important groups. If I had one group and I was sort of the four other groups were in the background, maybe okay. But five equal groups, I'm really not going to show that. Two groups, I'm also not going to show that because that's really just one number. So a pie chart that has two slices, it's really just one number. This is 33%. I'm not sure I need a pie chart for that. That being said, maybe on Twitter I would want to use a pie chart for two slices because it's very visual. We know visuals are really important on social media. Um, and maybe showing that very simple pie chart is a better approach than showing a single number. Maybe not showing the entire map or entire visualization. Maybe taking that bar chart that's oriented vertically and converting it to a column chart that's wider, um, which we know is also better for Twitter and for Facebook, maybe we need to make those changes when we're thinking about social media visualizations. So these are things that I've been thinking about. I know it's things other people have been thinking about. I've been talking to, to lots of people about maps, about how to uh, visualize qualitative data, how to think about new technologies and new tools. And I'm excited for the next set of episodes of the podcast. Uh, I have some great guests lined up for the rest of this year. Uh, I'll go through the end of 2017, take a little break at the end of the year, and start back up in January. Uh, so I'm really excited. I'm really grateful that you have all tuned in uh, week in and week out to listen to the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, please do uh, send me a note. Let me know uh, what you like about the show, uh, how you've been able to use the information you've learned in the show. And please do rate the show on iTunes. Please do... Uh, uh, or on your favorite uh, podcast provider. Uh, I've got t-shirts now. I've got stickers now. I actually have swag. Um, so you can actually uh, go to the shop on the policy of this site and check some of that stuff out. So thanks again for listening. I'm going to roll out this week with another song from the NRIs here in D.C. Uh, so thanks again for listening. Thanks for again for tuning into this week's episode. This has been the Policy of Viz podcast, the 100th episode. Thanks again. We're all Hammering for the next obsession Forging ahead even when hearts question Regret is best spent remembering good times And progress happens when you read between the lines
rejoice Oh, listen to the echo Echo of my voice Shout and rejoice Oh, listen to the echo Echo of my voice Shout and rejoice Stood, I done the best I could.